Welcome to the Data Diaries podcast and this special series on leading through the COVID-19 crisis for visitor attractions executives with your host, Angie Judge, Chief Executive of Dexhibit, Big Data Analytics for Visitor Attractions. Hello and welcome to the Data Diaries. I'm here with Ben Baldanza, an expert and leader from the travel and entertainment sector. Ben is a director with Six Flags Theme Parks and JetBlue Airline. Having spent a decade as CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben is also CEO now at DMarker, helping businesses and organizations with restructuring, something I imagine is in high demand at the moment. Ben is also a host on Airlines Confidential and an adjunct professor of economics with George Mason University. Gosh, you must have a a magic trick for getting more than 24 hours in your days, Ben. Welcome. (laughs) It's wonderful to be with you, and thank you very much for having me a host on this great podcast. I'm going to try my very hardest to pronounce the word Ben correctly here. So for most people, it's probably a very easy name, but my New Zealand accent tends to turn E's into I's. So Ben becomes Bin when I'm not careful. Don't worry about it. Ben is just fine. (laughs) (laughs) So today I want to talk about the intersection of the travel and entertainment industry, economics, and the pulse and recovery of tourism, which for many visitor attractions is historically a pillar of their business and something that we fear may be absent for a long while yet. And you you wrote at the beginning of April about the future return of leisure and, and VFR travel. I had to Google that one that was visiting friends and relatives. Has that rebound started to happen yet? And how far into that recovery are we? Well, we're not very far into that recovery for air travel yet. My belief is that um, the best way to think about air travel is really in three sectors. There is the VFR, visiting friends and relatives sector, sector, as you mentioned. There's true leisure travel, which are typically families or maybe couples going on a vacation or a long weekend or something. And then there is business travel. And by business travel, I mean the travel where the business pays for the ticket for the employee who takes the trip. There certainly is some business intent travel from small businesses, um, meaning that, but they pay for the ticket themselves. So when they're traveling for business, they actually tend to make their decisions more like a leisure customer in terms of trying to find the best price and maybe are willing to sacrifice time of day or something like that. So when I think about the recovery, the VFR sector, I believe, is going to be the first to recover in that... Um, in that uh, families need to see each other and uh, kids want to see grandparents and and um, families want to get together. And especially after a period of time when families have been kept apart because of this terrible virus we're all facing, I think families wanting to get together will be an early part of the rebound. And then I think leisure travel, leisure travel as well, although I don't expect much leisure travel to take place in the summer of 2020. I think most people are canceling their vacations as it relates to air travel in the summer. And what I'm hopeful for is a fairly strong rebound in leisure travel in the summer 2021. But I believe that uh, the industry is starting to see 
some tickbacks in bookings, but it's it's a it's a slow recovery from a very very steep drop. So when you look week over week and say, "Oh, we're booking ahead of last week," that sounds very good until you realize that last mm-hmm. week we we made two bookings and this week we made three bookings, right? And so it's a and so it's a very slow <laughs> ramp. Um, I've talked about the recovery being sort of a double U and. And I know you probably want to talk about that coming up, but I also think another way to think about the recovery might also be to think about it as a real long check mark or almost like a Nike swoosh or something like that, where there was a big drop up front and then a very slow slope back to recovery. And it's likely going to take a few years before the airline industry recovers from a demand standpoint from this virus. Now, other parts of the travel industry, I think, may recover sooner. Hotels, for example, I think will recover sooner. You can distance yourself in a hotel fairly nicely as long as, you know, the check-in process works. You go into your room and you're not sort of, you're in your room with the people you came with, basically, right? And so um, there may have to be changes. Maybe you're going to have to have food brought to your room instead of going to a restaurant or something like that. But I think that hotels will do it and, and people may drive someplace and then stay in a hotel. I think cruise lines may take longer than the airlines because while on the one hand, you're isolated with the people you're, you're with, uh, that's kind of a good thing. It's not like you're always being exposed to new and new people all the time. On the other hand, you're on a ship. And if there are people who are exposed, you're likely to get exposed and you're likely not going to be able to do much about it until the ship ports again. And so I think that different parts of the travel industry are going to recover at different rates. Theme parks, for example, and Six Flags, as you mentioned, I'm on their board. Six Flags is already starting to open some of their parks and they're limiting the attendance and they're requiring visitors to wear facial coverings. And they are only going to seat people every couple of rows on each ride. So there are compromises to opening. But I think that business, the theme park business, will will recover by the end of the summer, especially because as people might be reticent to get on an airplane, they might be very willing to drive 30 or 40 minutes to a park where they're going to spend the day outside and ride some fun rides. Staycation is. Yes, that's right. It's a way to do a staycation. That's exactly right. <laughs> so you wrote about the two waves of travel return this butts and seats this is my new favorite phrase but butts and seats at all cost phase and then the return of supply demand balance and hopefully profitable pricing what does that look like do we have any preview of how or even when that might unfold well that's an it's an interesting idea and and i believe this is right and i'll tell you why in my experience Uh, running pricing departments and revenue departments for airlines of different sizes through my career, I've often found that it's very difficult to sort of get any pricing leverage when the planes are not full. If you think about it, one of the crazy things about the airlines, and I don't want to get too geeky on you with economics (laughs) here, but airline average costs are very high. Planes are expensive. Uh, People are expensive. Fuel is expensive. Airports are expensive and things. Um, But the marginal cost of a seat is very low, meaning if there's a seat leaving in a few hours from now, an empty seat on a plane that's going to fly anyway, the cost for the airline to put you in that seat versus have the seat empty is literally measured in single digit dollars. And so... So when when airlines are running only a third full or half full, 
it's very hard for them to get the other people on the plane to pay more and and to sell higher price tickets when there's all these empty seats that they can make money on selling at a very low price. So with that background, the reason I think about it is two waves is one wave is going to be getting the volume back and the getting the volume back is going to be focused on getting customers confident and comfortable that they can be safe in an airport and in an airplane. And that's not a trivial task, but that's one that's going to have to happen for there to be a rebound in airlines. And um, but also to do that, I believe that the airlines are going to need to use relatively low pricing to incent that travel. At the time, a family, for example, might be thinking, you know, maybe I can be comfortable being on a plane for a few hours and we really want to go see our our friends or our parents or see our kids, see our grandparents or whatever. Um, when you can pair, can pair that with and look at this really great deal we got if we're willing to go next week, I think that might be the stimulus to say for to get some people to actually make that booking. And so there's some day in the future, I don't know when that day is, where the world airlines will carry as many people in a month or a week or a day or something as they carried before COVID. But on that date, whenever that is, and it, that's likely years off, but whenever that date happens, I don't believe the industry will be able to charge the prices that they were charging just before COVID because all of that time will be spent just getting the planes full. Mm -hmm. Then the airlines will take another two, three, four quarters or another year or longer to then take that supply demand in their favor of we have full airplanes now. Now when at certain times of day, certain days of week, certain times of year, we can take price up a little. And that's that's the two waves I see. There's a getting the volume back and then getting the rate back. And one of the reasons I thought it was helpful to think of it that way is that affects different airlines differently. Um, long haul, high cost airlines like a British Airways or an Emirates or an American Airlines or a Qantas, for example, need that higher rate. They carry lots of business travelers. They have relatively high costs of production and they need that staple of higher fares to make their airline work economically. But lower cost airlines like Jetstar or Spirit in the US or JetBlue in the US or Ryanair in Europe, those airlines are used to selling low fares and living on high volume because their cost structures are lower. So the lower fare carriers in the world will recover quickly than the, than the higher fare carriers because they don't need that second wave. When the volume is back, they're basically back. But some airlines are going to need that second wave. I hope that makes some sense to you. It is. And it's fascinating because some press were speculating that the world would be facing higher air travels as a result of COVID. So it um, it's certainly comforting as a consumer to hear that the opposite might be true. How does that price theory translate? How might those same dynamics play out for visitor attractions? Because for for venues that haven't used variable or dynamic pricing or haven't changed their prices much historically, it's really hard for them to measure elasticity or sensitivity. And we're seeing two opposing theories, and they are theories, one being that you need to discount to get people through the door. And I know I've been really quick to swoop on those sort of 50% flash sales that some places have offered. But then the other theory that that visitors who do show up really want to be there. So you could 
you should charge full price because you can. So who's right? Well, I think I think um, they're both right. And the key is identifying the people for whom each of those conditions matters. Do you need a lower price to stimulate business that may not happen? But can you take advantage of the of the eagerness, which economists call low price elasticity, right? But that eagerness to um, to be willing to pay more. And I think that's right. Now, in the U.S. right now, even though planes are not that full, what I said earlier actually isn't happening. The industry has taken a couple of price increases over the past few weeks in the U.S., and that's really not a good thing for the industry. What it says is that because they've been successful at that, it means the only people on the plane are people who absolutely have to be there. And no one who has made a discretionary decision to fly is flying yet. And that's that's really bad for the industry that that hasn't happened yet. And the evidence of that is they've been able to take some fares up in the short term. But I don't believe that that's a good long-term strategy. Now, for parks, I really think it's going to come down to, you know, certain days of week. Um, you know, there are days of week that are going to be really, really valuable. And when the parks are limiting the number of people who come in each day, I bet parks aren't going to have to their lower their rate much at all. And maybe even be able to take a little rate because they're limiting the amount of people who can go in the park right now. Um, on the other hand, on days of the week that aren't going to be even as full as the park is willing to let it go, I think they may have to figure out a way to say, look, if you come on a Tuesday or Wednesday, you can get this rate. But if you're going to come on a Saturday and Sunday, this is the rate. Which is uh, hard for uh, for fast pass sales um, and upgrades because I, I went to uh, our local theme park and there were literally no queues with some of the capacity limits and, uh, and sort of that slow return to, man- to demand. So it seemed to be difficult to get those per cats up. That's exactly right. And, and the fast pass options that many parks use are probably going to be a, a product they're not able to sell fairly much for the next, for this season, I think, meaning this summer or winter in your case, right? And, and, and the next mm. summer season, if they would normally have 10,000 people in the park, for example, but they're going to limit that to 2,000 people. Uh, so they can keep proper distancing and things like that. Why pay for a fast pass? The lines are all going to be short anyway. That's exactly right. And so I think that, mm. you know, certain products in certain businesses um, try to leverage price because of scarcity, which could be scarcity of time or scarcity of seats on an airplane or scarcity of product at a retail store or something like that. And, um, and, um, sort of willingness to pay of the customer at the same time. So uh, data science, which is becoming more and more in vogue and used in pricing, especially with in products that have um, variable costs that are quite different from their average costs, which include airplanes and cruises and hotels and theme parks, they all fit that. And so using data to understand who your customers are, what their price sensitivity is, what they're likely to be willing to pay and able to pay, and what are their substitutes? If they don't come to your park, what are they gonna do? Do you have a park close by that they might go to if they're running a sale versus are you in a captive geography? Yeah, it's funny. I think we saw years of digital transformation squeezed into a few weeks when we went into lockdown and now we're seeing probably years of of data transformation about to be squeezed into a few months as we all come out of it. I 
I know we're, we're starting to see some regional tourism bubbles be tabled in theory. We've got one shaping up between New Zealand and Australia. There is talks underway in Asia and so the same in parts of, of Europe and, and Scandinavia, with the exception of Sweden, of course. How do you think this jigsaw-style return to the international long-haul movement will unfold for the world? That's a wonderful question. And um, I'll tell you one thing I'm certain of which is that long-haul travel has a longer recovery period than short-haul travel. Um, I can imagine, even for myself, who is more bullish about willingness to get back on an airplane, right? having a good understanding of how air moves on the airplane and, and knowing what, how the airplanes are being cleaned and things. On the other hand, while I might be willing to hop on a flight that's a couple hours long, I live in Washington to go up to Boston or maybe down to Florida, um, I don't think I would be willing yet to fly over to India where I do some work or uh, to fly across the Atlantic or Pacific Oceans right now. The thought of having to wear a mask for 14 hours on a plane is still a little bit daunting to me. And, uh, and I think that much of that travel, especially in the business and first class cabins, more business, which really pays for a lot of those trips, I think business are gonna, our businesses are going to be saying, well, you know, we don't need to send four people. We can send one person on this trip, or maybe we can do this whole meeting by video conference now. And I think the long haul carriers or the airlines that have a substantial piece of their business focused on long haul, which in the U.S. would include, would include like a Delta American or United, but certainly a carrier like a British Airways or an Emirates or an Etihad or a Qantas, with a lot of their service being fairly long haul. I realize Qantas flies domestic within Australia as well. Um, I think that piece of their business is going to recover much more slowly. And if you believe that, I mean, I believe, for example, that leisure traveler leisure travel will be fairly strong in the summer of 2021, but I don't believe long haul leisure travel will be back by 2021. I think that's going to take another year or more. Um, the issues are much more daunting. And I also think there's also another issue with connecting versus point to point travel in a point to point travel. You can, you know, you deal with one airport at one end and you can be as comfortable as you're willing to make yourself about whether the experience on board the airplane can be safe for you in terms of how you can keep the area around you clean and the and wearing a mask and and understanding airflow in the plane and things like that. But then if you have to be dumped off in a Heathrow or a Dubai or a big hub maybe even Sydney in Australia, if you're coming in to connect to a Trans-Pacific flight, where you're going to be with maybe potentially a lot of people connecting, and you're going to be in that airport for an hour, hour and a half waiting for your next flight. The hold rooms, which are the areas at the gate where people board, are going to get crowded. And those are going to be seen, I think, by customers as riskier things. So if I can get on a plane and get off where I'm going, as opposed to having to spend that extra couple hours in a very crowded hub, I might choose to wait till I have that nonstop option or maybe not take the connect right now. That's so true. And we've heard a lot of chat about the prospect of pent-up demand for visitor attractions upon reopening. And in all regions like mine where reopening has happened so far, there were definitely queues at the hairdressers, but I certainly haven't seen any evidence of it in visitor attractions. Do you think the the tourism market itself, even if we're talking about short haul or even drive-in 
is that going to be a slow growth curve too, or do we hold any hope for pent up demand there? I think it's going to be slow growth um, through this summer. I will, I'll give you a, just a real simple little anecdote. My wife looked at me last night. She said, so are we going to take any vacation of any kind this summer? It's summer where I am, of course, right now, right? And, uh, and I said to her, well, where could we go? Like, where could we go where you could do things you want to do on a vacation? Visit interesting places, eat at interesting restaurants, see different sites. I mean, where could we go and do that right now? We just don't know anywhere we could. And so I do think it'll be um, a fairly long recovery for that period too. Because even if you can drive and even if you can um, be comfortable that the hotel you stay in will be safe because you can fairly quickly get to your room and the check-in will be you know, made contactless and things like that. You then have to think about, well, what am I going to do where I am? Can I go to the sites? Can I, are they even open? Can I, can I, can I eat anything other than room service in the hotel? And all the things that make vacations great in terms of the activities you can do, they're going to come back at all different paces. And my guess is some things will come back quicker than others. India, for example, just uh, emerged from a big lockout. And I don't know how quickly it is that they'll be able to take crowds of people at the Taj Mahal. And if you're going to go to India on vacation, are you going to say, but I'll just skip the Taj Mahal this time? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so I do think that the pacing of leisure travel is going to be really based on two things. It's going to be based on confidence of the consumer that they can travel, whether it's by car or by plane, and be safe. And then secondly, the set of opportunities where they would go that there's enough to say, I can have the kind of time I would want to have there because enough things are open. I don't have to just hope it's not raining so that the only restaurants I can eat at are at an outdoor patio, for example. Mm. And when, when people do come back, do you have any market sentiment or theories on who we might see first in terms of demographics or motivations or behaviors? Um, I don't have any great data on that yet because we don't really know how people will behave. But uh, but like I said earlier, I think families will drive a lot of early travel back. I think the family ties bind quite strongly around the world. And many cultures sort of depend a lot on family ties. And so I think that I think that family travel will be a, a leading indicator of travel return. Then I think um, sort of leisure vacations that are outdoors in nature. So to beaches or hikes in mountains or things like that, as opposed to um, architectural kind of vacations where you'd go inside ancient churches or, 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 um, or sites or things like that, because that, that becomes a little bit more difficult. So I think outdoorsy kind of vacations would be the next sort of piece. And then sort of almost city by city or maybe region by region, how, how much, you know, the museums, the sites and things like that are open. I mean, is, is somebody really going to want to take a vacation to Paris but not go to the Louvre or not be able to walk up to the Eiffel Tower or not be able to do things that when you're in Paris you want to see? So until those things are open, Paris is not going to have a lot of visitors. And one of the big risks our visitor attraction sector is planning for is the threat of rolling closures. Is that something you're seeing the air industry prepping for as well? Yes, I think that's right. And the uh, the uncertainty, you know, 
businesses just don't deal well with uncertainty in general because you don't know how to plan. And the fact that um, at least in the U.S. right now, the and in, in some other parts of the world, we're starting to see some um, good directions of infection and and transmission and things like that that is encouraging more things to start to open on a slow basis. I mean, I was able to get a haircut a few days ago for the first time in about two and a half months. And, uh, and I was certainly happy about that. <laughs> but um, the whole idea of, of where, when people will be comfortable and when economies will be comfortable opening is just racked with uncertainty right now. And when you see, there's a fear that if things open up too quickly, and crowds get together again quickly, will, will transmission start to increase again? And will there be broader transmission of this virus that we don't yet have a vaccine for, you know, because we've opened up too soon? And so there's this whole uh, maybe chicken and egg or don't let the genie out of the bottle too quickly sort of um, conservatism and reticence with the idea of opening too many things too soon because of not wanting to have... Um, you know, a re-emergence of, of a big lockdown again in the fall. Mm. And one thing I just don't get when we're talking international travel is that even if the borders do open up, where your home country no longer has a heavy travel arrival uh, travel warning and your host country is welcoming you in and you don't have to go through quarantines on either side, what travel insurer is going to take the risk on COVID-19 coverage? And and in the face of a relatively high risk from a disease that can land you in hospital, potentially requiring ICU care, what traveler is going to take that on? Well, that's a wonderful question. And, you know, when people travel, most most people, when they take, you know, substantial kind of trips, not just, you know, a, a drive across town, right, They they think about well, what are my health concerns? Do they take any vaccinations or any, any you know, vaccinations or, or sort of prophylactic care before they go um, based on where they'll be? And they, they tend to think about that somewhat and maybe they get insurance to get a flight back soon if they get really sick or something like that. The COVID world changes that dramatically, right? It, especially with the quarantines. I mean, I'll give you, a again, just a very anecdotal example, which um, I hope is relevant to all of your listeners, but um, I serve on the board of a company that's in New York City. And right now, there are some states that if you have been to New York in the last 14 days, you need to quarantine for 14 days. So I'm debating whether the next meeting at the end of June, I should go. I believe I could take the trip there. I believe I could be safe there. But do I really want to expose myself that for 14 days, I couldn't do anything else because I have to be quarantined because I went to New York, right? And so the quarantining is a huge thing. Getting the quarantines out of both ends of a trip, I think will be a big stimulator for travel between the two areas that do that. When I can leave and take the trip and when I get there, enjoy what I was going to enjoy. And when I come back home, I can go back home and live my life, not just be quarantined. I think that's really, really important as a, as a stimulator to travel. And that's another reason I think that long haul travel will take longer to come back because getting that 
you know, it's it's one thing to travel within New Zealand, I'm guessing, or within Australia or within the United States. The rules about what you can and can't do on departure and arrival are very different than if you're coming in, certainly from China or from, you know, another part of the world. And what are your predictions for what the shape and structure of the travel and tourism and entertainment industry is going to look like? We've We've heard in visitor attractions that we might see up to a third of consolidation in venue numbers, um, particularly those in the hardest hit areas like performing arts. But what are your um, your thoughts about the companies that feed us visitors like air and rail or even booking agents? That's another wonderful question. I think agents actually become a little bit more important in this world because agents would, I think, are seen and will be seen as a good source of information about what is current and what is safe. And they might, agents might even be able to help you, for example, think about, well, if this is the kind of vacation that you're interested in, here are the places that are realistic to do that, given the quarantine rules, given sites that are open or closed and things like that. And it would take a long time for an individual to research all of those things. And so I actually think the reliance on a travel professional who can help sort through um, all the differences in rules by country, quarantines by country, sites open and not, could be actually something that while someone might normally not want to use that, might want to use that in the near term. So I think agents are going to have reduced volume because fewer people are traveling, of course, overall, and that's going to be take away from their business. On the other hand, I think they'll win some business as travel starts to come back from people that they didn't typically serve. In terms of um, in terms of feeding um, countries with with um, travelers, I think the most important thing is that the again that the that the travelers can do what they want to do while they're there. In terms of the reason they would come to a New Zealand or um, a Polynesian island or wherever they would go, and if they're not able to put together a package of experiences. Um, that would be the reason they would go there in the first place. They're just going to say, we're not going to go there yet, right? I'm not, I'm not going to go to this place until I can do what I want in that place. I'm not going to go to India until I can go to the Taj Mahal, right? And so so I, th- I think it really comes down to um, sort of a more regional cooperation um, among cities, areas with regions within a country, and in some cases, whole countries, to think about how are we going to market our country or our region is a place that now you can come and be safe and have fun. That's such an an important message that, you know, we work together as an industry and, and about, you know, when you bring visitors back to one place, you bring them back to many and, and only through that cooperation, do we, do we grow out of this thing? Yes, I think that's exactly right. Working together is so important. It's, it's funny in our isolation, we have to work together more than ever, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's an interesting sort of dichotomy there, but I think that's right. Um, you know, airlines, for example, um, it's, it's not going to be helpful in terms of bringing competence back to air travel if each airline has all kinds of different rules on what you need to mm. do when you check in and what you can and can't do on board and whether you have to have your temperature taken or not or things like that. That's going to be confusing to customers versus the industry, the airline industry working together to say, here are the things we, we can prove to customers will be safe and we're either all going to take temperatures or we're all not going to. 
or we're all going to wear masks or we're all not to. And I think that consistency brings confidence. And you can take that out of the airline context and say the hotels should work together in the same way. And theme parks should work together and museums should work together and so that so that customers and travelers can think, okay, I understand what it means to visit a museum now and what it means to visit a theme park now or what it means to fly on an airplane right now. They don't have to think because I'm going to this museum or that theme park or flying on this particular airline, I've got to learn all these rules every time I go. That is so true. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today and helping paint the picture for us of the travel and tourism macroeconomic situation. Well, it's so nice to be with both of you. Um, I wish you tons of success with this podcast. And most importantly, um, I am very optimistic about travel as an industry. The human beings need to travel. And one of the joys in life is seeing new things, meeting new people, having new experiences. And I think that's in, that's, that is pan-cultural. I think that's true in lots of places, in lots of people. Mm-hmm. So I, I am bullish on the long-term view of the travel industry, but it is certainly going to take some time to get there. And I believe the travel industry as a group can be very proactive in helping to bring customers back by working together, by explaining and, and doing the things that will make people comfortable. Not be passive and wait till people are comfortable again, but proactively show customers how they can be comfortable, how they can enjoy themselves again. Ain't that the truth? Thank you, Ben. For more content and community on COVID-19 for visitor attractions, head to covid.dexhibit.com and we'll see you next time. Thank you all very much.